Thank you. I knew that scripture was short, but I was in the back and I, I didn't make it up fast enough. Sorry. <laughs> um, let me also just, uh, let me say two things. Um, first of all, uh, as you saw in the video, camp was so much fun. Beyond what the video would be able to show, God did great things uh, through youth camp this week in individual uh, students' lives. Um, and above all, we want to thank the Lord because it's His Spirit that's doing work. But I just want to say a brief word of thanks to all of the adults uh, to, who took time off of their regularly scheduled day jobs uh, who took time out of their schedules, who have been working, some of them, for months in advance uh, in order to plan for that youth camp and make it happen. I just want to say a word of thanks. And young people over here, would you join me in just saying thanks to those people who made that possible? And the other thing I want to say is on behalf of the rest of us, I was having a conversation with my friend Joyce earlier today, and we felt a little offended that we don't have cool green shirts like y'all have. We feel like that's kind of exclusive of you guys to take all the cool green shirts and not share them with the rest of us. And so if you are one of the rest of us in this room who isn't wearing one of the cool green t-shirts that they're wearing, I'm with you and I too am offended. All right. So that's the best I can say. But we rejoice with those who rejoice and we are happy that they are happily wearing their cool green t-shirts that they didn't think to share with us. So that's what that is. Um, uh, let me begin. Um, let me begin with a story that many of you have heard before because it's a, a story that I repeat, a story that I share in our starting point class for newcomers. Um, but uh, listen, some stories are worth uh, retelling, and some points are worth making more than once for the sake of emphasis. And the story um, that I want to share goes like this. Back in the day uh, when I was a single guy, uh, like a college-aged person myself, I was hanging out with a group of college-aged guys from this church. And as it typically goes with college-aged guys, when we got together to hang out, nobody had planned for anything. Nobody had planned for food. Nobody had planned ahead. And so, um, and so we were just hanging out with nothing to eat. And one of, one of the girls in our church family, who was also college age, kind of our age, she, she heard that all of the college age dudes were hanging out together and we had no plans and no food. And she took pity on us. And out of her compassion and out of her kindness, um, she drove by the place where we were hanging out and she dropped off a box of brownie mix. Can someone say, aw, that was very sweet of her. And I think that there was some unspoken reasoning on her part. The unspoken reasoning was this. Even a group of single fellas can figure out how to make brownies out of a box, right? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think there were only three ingredients listed on the back of the box, so her reasoning was fairly sound. On the front of the box, there was this picture of delicious-looking brownies, and on the back of the box, there were very simple instructions 
about very simple ingredients that were needed in order to get to the picture on the front of the box of those delicious looking brownies. All you needed to do was take the brownie mix, which was right there inside of the box anyway, and you needed to combine it with water. So far, this is not difficult. And then you needed to add in two eggs, put it in the oven for the appointed amount of time, and brownies. How hard could it be, right? Trouble was that at the single dude's place, we didn't have any eggs in the fridge. No problem. One of the guys suggested that sometimes when you bake things, you use vegetable oil as one of the ingredients. (laughs) I know, I was there. But we're still in the middle of the story right now, so hold on. Some of you understand, but the single fellas, you understand how reasonable this idea was. Sometimes when you bake things, you use vegetable oil. So we figured it was quite reasonable to substitute about two eggs worth of vegetable oil in place of the eggs, mix it all together, put it in the pan, stick it in the oven for the appointed amount of time. And that's exactly what we did. And at the appointed time, we came back and we opened the oven. And we reached in for the pan of brownies. And out from the oven came this delicious chocolatey aroma, seeming to assure us that our mission was accomplished. But when we took the pan out of the oven and set it on the counter, to our great surprise... What came out of the oven was not brownies, but some kind of soupy mixture that I can only describe as chocolate goulash. What we had baked was not even brownies. It smelled kind of chocolatey, but it looked absolutely nothing like the picture on the box. And it was no use whatsoever trying to cut it into rectangles. You see, that day we learned an important life lesson, single fellas pay attention, all right? The important life lesson was this, if a recipe calls for brownie mix, water, and eggs, you can't skip the eggs. Amen. Wherever that brother is, that's that's my people over there. That's my people. <laughs> And here's the point I want to make with that story. Here's the connection that I want to make. If as we read the pages of the New Testament, if we get in the pages of the New Testament a vision for church that involves only a few simple ingredients, like gospel truth and gospel mission and loving relationships with one another, then you can't skip the loving relationships with one another. If you do, if you do skip that simple ingredient of love that the New Testament describes as essential for Jesus' vision for His church, 
if you do skip that, you can pour in all the gospel truth you want. And you can mix that gospel truth through a whole bunch of programs and a whole bunch of events. And you can sing all of the songs. But if you skip that essential ingredient of love, what we're going to get might smell kind of churchy, but it won't end up looking anything like the picture that God gives us inside his book. All the gospel truth in the world, all the best designed programs and strategies are nothing without this essential ingredients of Christian love. You see, if God tells us that his vision for church involves only a a few simple ingredients, then you can't skip love. You can't skip the importance of our relationships with one another. That's the point that I want to make. And here we are in the middle of a sermon series through the book of Ephesians. We began this sermon series right at that time when God led two congregations here in the Aurora area to link arms together, to join together, and become one congregation And we decided to start this new sermon series in the book of Ephesians, which is a book that teaches us, as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22 says, it teaches us about, quote, being built together in Him. And as we're paying attention to God's design for being built together, as we're paying attention to God's design for life together in the church, we've come in our series through the book of Ephesians to this very simple statement here in Ephesians chapter 5. We're listening to this ancient letter from the days of the early church, a letter written by Paul to a church in Ephesus somewhere around the year A.D. 60. And we come to this simple, clear statement about God's design for the church. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And what does that mean? More specifically, walk in love. That's relationship language. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, according to Paul, according to the New Testament, according to God's very voice that speaks to us through the Scriptures, if we want to live together as God's church, then we cannot skip this essential ingredient of love. Question, how do we learn to love one another in the church? And Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, gives us a couple of helpful directions for how we learn to actually love one another in the church. Ephesians 5.1 gives us an important piece of the answer. It tells us, first of all, that we learn to love 
from how God has loved us. From how God has loved us and made us a part of his family. Ephesians 5.1 Be imitators of God as loved children. God's love, God's love has been an important theme throughout the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. It's a theme that we've noticed over and over and over again as we've made our way through this book. I don't know if you remember the first time that this theme shows up in the book of Ephesians, this theme of God's love for us. But it shows up very clearly right from the beginning of the book. In fact, if you flip back a page or so to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, the book of Ephesians begins by telling us about God's incredible love for us that took the initiative in making us part of his family. Ephesians 1, 3 explained it like this. It comes in the form of a word of praise. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That's His initiative taking love toward us. But what was the goal of that initiative taking love for us? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. And more specifically, in love, He predestined us for what? What's the next word there? For what? Adoption. See, adoption is family language. The book of Ephesians has been telling us about the immeasurable love of God that led Him to decide... To make us a part of his family. And then Ephesians chapter 5 picks up on this theme. And it says to us. As you live your life together as a church. Imitate God. As beloved children. And what will that involve for us to imitate God as beloved children? It will involve, like God, deciding to count others in our congregation in love as part of our family. Be imitators of God as beloved children. It's not only that God chose to take the initiative in order to make us part of His family. Going further, we might point out that God not only chose to take the initiative in making us part of His family, taking it a step further, He took the initiative in showing us grace when we were dead in our sins. Ephesians chapter 2 begins with what we might describe as a little bit of bad news as it describes, as it works its way toward telling us about God's immeasurable love toward us. 
It says to people like you and me, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then here in verse, in chapter 2, verse 4, we get this description of God's love. God knowing full well that we had turned our backs on him and we had given ourselves over to all kinds of ungodliness. And listen, that was true of me, if I'm honest. And it was true of all of us, if we're honest with it. Haven't we turned our backs on God and given ourselves to ways of life that are ungodly? But here's what God did in response to that because of his immeasurable love. Chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We read that and we think to ourselves, well, thank God, I appreciate receiving grace from God. And all of us do appreciate it when we receive grace and mercy and forgiveness. That's something we appreciate, right? But now in Ephesians chapter 5, the orientation shifts a little bit. The focus shifts a little bit. And now... The implications of our gospel theology begin to show up in our relationships in the church. And according to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1, we are called to be imitators of God as beloved children. We're called to be imitators of the God who chose to show us grace even when we had done wrong. In fact, that's the most immediate context of the verses that we're looking at today. Um, Let me pause for a second and just another little thing. One time there was a a friend of mine in our church family um, who was conscientious about things, I would say. He wanted to make sure that he was doing things in alignment with Scripture. And he heard people say things like, we should show grace to one another. And he started thinking through it a little bit and he said, I can't think of any command in the Bible that calls us to show grace to each other. We're called to love people, we're called to forgive, but does the Bible actually call us to show grace? Isn't grace just what God does? The answer actually is found in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. But there's something interesting there because that verb that we translate forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you is just a verb of the Greek word that Paul uses in this in this book for grace. Keep on gracing one another. Keep on extending grace to one another as God in Christ has extended grace to you. And then the very next statement, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. 
So there's a picture that's starting to come together of how we learn to love each other. We learn to love each other in the church from how God has loved us. And what does that involve? It involves God choosing to call us part of his family. And it involves God choosing to extend grace even though we have real faults, failures, sins, and transgressions in our lives. What then does it mean for us to love one another in the church? It means that just as God has set His love on us and declared us to be part of His family all by grace, not because of how well we've earned it or deserved it, so in the same way, we are called to look around the congregation that we participate in. And we are called to look at, you know, remember what was going on in the city of Ephesus, in the church in Ephesus when Paul wrote this letter. There were some people from one kind of ethnic background, a Jewish ethnic background. There were some people in the church from other kinds of ethnic backgrounds, Asian people. And according to Jewish eyes, those Asian people were others. They were Gentiles. They were not among us. And Paul is writing this letter and saying, God has built us together in Christ. The mystery of the church is that the Gentiles, those Asian brothers and sisters, they're fully included in the family of faith. And now Paul is writing to this congregation and saying, I'm calling you not just to admit that God has welcomed those people into his family who are culturally different, not just to admit that God has welcomed those people into his family who have a background of sin and failure and transgression in their lives, but now God is calling you to imitate him, to imitate his love. In looking around at a room full of people who are culturally different. In looking around at a room full of people where we might want to go along and say, but that person has mistakes. But that person has sins. But that person has a history. And God calls us to look around our own congregation with eyes that are like God's own eyes. Eyes that choose to look around a room full of people who are different. Eyes that choose to look at a room full of people who each have transgressions and sins. And instead of labeling them as other and different and separated, and instead of labeling them simply as sinners, God's Word calls us to look around and call these other people around us brother, sister, Beloved members of my family. Be imitators of God as beloved children who understand we're here. I'm here only by grace anyway. And so as a beloved child who experiences full access to the Father all by grace, through faith. I'm called to imitate His love by choosing to treat others as a part of the family of God as well, regardless of what cultural differences, 
regardless of what kinds of background these brothers or sisters may have. How do we learn to love in the church? Ephesians 5.1 gives us an important piece of the answer. It tells us that we need to learn from how God has loved us, how he's loved us as part of the family. And one thing I want to notice about that is that this was both the genius of the early church and the challenge of the early church. Um, this might feel like a tangent for a second, but stick with me, okay? Um, some, of you, uh, some of you may know who Rain Wilson is, yeah? He's the actor who played the great character Dwight Schrute in the TV show The Office, yeah? And um, he identifies with the Baha'i faith. He's not trying to win people to the historic Christian faith, but... But Rain Wilson did an interview recently that gained some buzz. And in that interview, Rain Wilson, who identifies with the Baha'i faith, but apparently has been studying the history of religion and things like that, one of the things that he recently said in this interview a few weeks ago is he said this. He said about the early church, never before in the history of humanity had a more diverse group of people gathered and been welcomed, loved, and accepted than in the early church. And I heard that, and my first, my first response was just to feel kind of shocked. Because as somebody who has watched many episodes of The Office, I'm just not used to hearing that voice and that face say things that are all studied, or at all wise, or at all discerning. So part of me was just kind of having a little bit of like cognitive dissonance here, right? But my second thought was... That's surprisingly well said. Rain Wilson and I might not agree about a lot of things about the history of Christianity. I don't know. But it's surprisingly well identified. When in the history of the world had a more diverse group of people gathered and been welcomed, loved, and accepted than when the church of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ began going out to make disciples among all nations. That was the genius of the early church. And listen, brothers and sisters, what I want to suggest is this is our heritage. This is our tradition. This is what Jesus has called us to be, a loving people. But in the early church, as well as in today... This was not only the genius of Jesus' design for the church, this was also the challenge of Jesus' design for the church. You see, as much as Rain Wilson, I think, is right that there was this remarkable diversity of people gathering and experiencing love and welcome in the early church, this is one of the great challenges that churches in the first century faced, is how do we actually live with people? How do we actually live alongside? How do we actually say brother or sister to people who are culturally different? And this is why books like Romans... And Ephesians and 1 Corinthians spend so much time trying to address unity in the church. 
And it wasn't just the early church that struggled with this. This is our challenge as well, right? As much as we may cheer and celebrate for the vision of a unified church family where people from different cultural backgrounds can gather together and call one another brother or sister, it gets challenging sometimes, doesn't it? Still today. And so as much as we initially say, we love this design for a church of people who are different but united, it takes effort. It takes work. It takes maintenance. Which is why Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 urges us to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity that the Holy Spirit has created in the bond of peace. It takes, it's a vision that we love, but it's a vision that requires maintenance. You see, as much as we may all initially say, I love the idea that love is one of the key ingredients in the church. It takes some work to actually get that love mixed into our week-by-week experience of life in the family of God, doesn't it? As we think about two church families becoming one church family, there are cultural differences between our backgrounds, right? Some people will think about things in slightly different language. Some people are used to doing things in slightly different ways. Even our Sunday services feel a little bit different. I mean, one thing that I think many of us joke about is like, you know, I used to feel like I had a seat that I sat in in this church, but now I don't even know which one that is because I walk in and somebody else is sitting there in my seat. And I used to know all the people on the stage, but now I don't even know the names. They've got a name tag, but it's too small for me to read. And things feel a little different. People say things a little bit differently. I'm in the same building, but there's a whole bunch of people who feel more like strangers than family. And what do we do when we show up week after week to worship Jesus, feeling like we're in a room full of people who feel a little more like strangers than family? Ephesians gives us not only a theological foundation for our unity together, which we studied for a couple of months in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. It also gives us practical steps to take. And some of those steps include imitating God, knowing that we, not just you, but we as Christians, are beloved children of God. And so here's one suggestion that I might want to make to you, kind of practically. When you look around this room and you 
bump into people who feel a little more like strangers than family, can I encourage you to be an imitator of God as a beloved child and recognize that the grace of God that loved you and declared you to be a part of the family is also something that you can extend to others who feel right now like strangers? By bumping into, when we bump into somebody who feels more like a stranger than a part of the family, we can make a decision ourselves to say, I'm going to treat this person like part of the family. I'm going to extend love and grace and mercy to them. And I don't even need to know how holy or perfect their life has been in the past before I begin extending that love and mercy and grace and kindness to them. And inevitably, there will come times along the way where in the life of the church, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to step on each other's toes. I hope not literally because that can hurt, but you know what I mean. We're going to step on each other's toes. We're going to do things that kind of annoy each other a little bit. Look, I'm very aware I do stuff that annoys a lot of y'all. Sunset facts. <laughs> when we do stuff that annoys each other, or deeper than that, when we do stuff that ends up hurting each other, I mean, real wrongs happen in the life of the church. In these moments, we need to not only say, look, we're family in God's eyes, but forget it between us. We need to learn habits of saying, we're family in God's eyes. And this is going to take some maintenance between us. This is going to take some maintenance, which begins how? Not by ignoring sins, wrongs, transgressions, etc. God does not ignore our sins, wrongs, transgressions, etc., does he? In fact, he names them very clearly. But he does not name sin, transgressions, and faults, and our guilt simply to leave us wallowing in our shame. He names our sins, our transgressions, our faults, our guilt very specifically in order to redeem us and in order to show us forgiveness, mercy, and grace beyond that. And this is a pattern for how, I hate to tell you, we're going to have to learn to live with each other as one family. Be imitators of God, the one who gives grace. And that means when we run into people who feel more like strangers, we can look at them and say, you're a part of the family. And it also means when we run into people who we feel have wronged us, or at least at some little level, just kind of get on our nerves and bug us, we can say, I've experienced grace and mercy as a beloved child of God. I've experienced forgiveness and restoration 
despite all of my wrongs. And so as a, as a child of God, who, is, who knows God doesn't view me and treat me on the basis of how I've wronged him. He views me and treats me through the lens of love. Through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so I can look at brothers or sisters who at the simplest level just bug me or annoy me. Or at a more serious level perhaps wrong me or sin against me. I can look at them and I can say there is sometimes real wrong that needs to be addressed. And yet as somebody who has been loved despite my faults and failures and guilt and sin and transgression. I'm eager to keep on forgiving. I'm eager to show kindness from a heart that isn't hardened and angry, but a heart that is soft and tender. You know that feeling difference? I'm able to show kindness, as Ephesians 4.32 says. I'm able to do it from a heart that is not tight and stone hard, but a heart that is soft and tender. And I'm able to show kindness from a tender heart, forgiving others as God in Christ forgave me. Therefore, church, live as imitators of God, as beloved children. And what about when that feels really, really hard or really, really costly? I mean, forgiveness, real forgiveness, is not cheap. Real bearing with one another in love. It's not easy. So when we run into those challenges, what will empower us to really bear with one another? What will empower us to really forgive and keep on loving one another as God in Christ forgave us? What happens as Ephesians 5, 2 says... One step at a time, walk in love. Don't long jump in it. One step at a time, walking in love. How? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, which was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, as we think about being children who are loved by God with full and free access to the Father and a full and forever inheritance together with Jesus Christ, and as we think of our call to love each other with that kind of love, it might feel overwhelming, it might feel challenging, at times it might even feel nearly impossible. But here's the path that we're called to walk it's a path of one step at a time taking another step of love another step of mercy another step of forgiveness all the while with our gaze fixed on our lord jesus christ who knows full well what it is to love the church even when it is costly I mentioned a few weeks ago this recent research that says something like 
70% of Americans among our, uh, something like 70% of Americans have a high view of Jesus. And yet, fewer than 33% of Americans, fewer than 33% of our neighbors in our neighborhoods have a positive view of the church. And as time goes on, more and more people are saying, I love the stuff that Jesus teaches, or at least some selective version of it sometimes. I love the stuff that Jesus teaches, but I'm sick of the church. And what do we and their decision then is I'm done with church, right? And if I talk with a neighbor who's making that kind of decision, my first impulse is actually to slow down the conversation a little bit and say, I understand your disappointments with church. Church is not perfect by any means. I understand disappointments with church, and and I'd want to take some time to listen and to hear what have their experiences of church been. But at some point in the conversation, if I'm talking with a friend who says, I've got a high view of Jesus, but I don't like the church, and therefore I'm done with church. At some point we need to say, I agree with your criticisms of the church, but I don't agree with your conclusion about the church. Why? Because of that guy, Jesus, that we share a high view of. You see, he knew full well how costly it is to love the church. Now, I'm not talking about ignoring sin or wrong or abuse or other things like that. That's not what I'm talking about. In fact, Jesus does not ignore sins, transgressions, failures, or guilt. But Jesus Christ, knowing full well the faults of the church... Jesus looked at this diverse body of people from every nation and language and tribe and tongue, every cultural background on the planet, knowing full well all of our sins, knowing full well how people like me would keep turning around and walking the other way. And Jesus says to the church, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you so much that I will give myself for you. And this is the call that Ephesians chapter 5 sets in front of each of us. Be imitators of God who declares the church family to be His family. Be imitators of God who recognizes sin, transgression, and guilt, and yet extends mercy, forgiveness, and grace. Be imitators of God as beloved children and keep taking one step at a time in mercy, grace, forgiveness, and love toward those other brothers and sisters in the congregation that you participate in. Keep on taking one step at a time in love. How? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. How do we do that? Sometimes that's going to involve using our eyes to look around and see people. 
Sometimes walking in love will require using our eyes in order to notice others. Maybe noticing others that others, maybe noticing others who are easily overlooked. Maybe noticing others who feel distant or alone. Maybe noticing others who don't have a whole swarm of friends around them. Maybe noticing others who are taking first steps of faith and making a mess of it so far. Maybe noticing others who wouldn't even be celebrated anywhere in our society. Listen, in order to walk in love, we need to use our eyes to notice others. We may need to notice others who are just plain and simply different than us. Uh, I got my crew of folks over here in your green shirts. And if you're still awake, you need, do we need a wellness check with our neighbors here? We're doing okay so far. You slept 20 hours yesterday. That's great. After you got home. But um, listen, young people, um, I want to give you a word of encouragement to use your eyes to notice others in this congregation that you don't yet know as part of your family of faith. And I want to encourage you guys in the green shirts to go and find people, maybe people twice your age or three times your age. I want to encourage you to go and find people who are a part of this family of faith and notice them and get to know them. Use the name tags if you need to. Ask them how to pronounce their names if you can't pronounce it. Notice people that you can't notice. And let me say a word to all of y'all, like me, who didn't get the green t-shirts. I know, I know. There are young people here in this congregation today. And I'd like to invite you and encourage you. If there are people in green shirts that you don't know, go and find them. Find a new name today of someone you haven't met. Let me speak for a second to those of you who are a part of the Redeemer background, those of you who two months ago thought you were a part of Redeemer Community Church, can I encourage you to use your eyes to notice people in this room who weren't worshiping with us two months ago? And maybe to go and find one person to introduce yourself to them even today. And can I encourage those of you from an Advent background as well? If we haven't all found our way to you yet... Maybe you can find one person today as well to introduce yourself to likewise. In order to walk in love, we need to use our eyes to notice others. In order to walk in love, we need to use our ears to listen to others. Asking simple questions about each other's background. One of the best and simplest pieces of advice that I have for moving forward as one family of faith is to treat one another as long-lost family members here. And what do you do when you get together with a long-lost family member? You want to learn about them. Why? Because you love them. And in a similar way, as we meet new brothers and sisters and choose to treat them as family, treat one another as long-lost family members. Listen to each other's stories. Ask questions and then ask follow-up questions to listen more. To walk in love, we may need to use our voices to encourage others. We may need to use our voices to speak words that will build others up and strengthen others. 
In order to walk in love, we need to use our feet to keep showing up. It's hard to love other people or it's hard to say that you're loving other people in the faith family if you're not showing up to get together with them, to meet them, to talk with them. Now listen, I think I've missed three or four weeks in a row of my own small group. So I might sound like a hypocrite here. My own small group is like, yup. I was on vacation. I was at youth camp. I haven't been there in like three or four weeks. But as I think about that small group of guys that I get together with on Thursday mornings, I'll tell you what, I never feel like waking up and going to a small group meeting when my alarm goes off on Thursday morning. But I get out of bed and I get myself over there a few minutes late very often. (laughs) Why? Because I know that in the big picture of life, I want to give myself in love to other people. And I want to be a part of a church family, a church community that actually involves real relationships with real people, not just truth and programs. To walk in love, we need to use our feet to keep on showing up, to keep on moving closer to others here in this family of faith. And to walk in love, above all, we need to use our faith to keep our eyes fixed on our great Redeemer who loved us and who gave Himself to us. Who loved us and declared us to be part of His family all by grace. Who loved us even when it was deeply costly to Him. And who now says, Beloved, As I have loved y'all, now y'all go love one another. That's the call of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2.